Uh, the weekend and plenty from your day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Women were both powerless and the angel of the house and, and the domestic woman and uh, that, that binary of, uh, you know, the crazy woman, the yes. dangerous woman. I walked down my street towards where I was going and the next thing I could hear this car and this guy had his window down and he was shouting directly at me. The last thing I heard him say was, next time I will kill you. It happened my father once in Chapel Elizabeth Bridge in, in Dublin and he, okay. he, his car broke down. He walked back to the driver behind and said to him, hi, any chance you can explain to me how your horn is going to start my car? <laughs> <laughs> And we'll start with Callan's kicks and it's just over two weeks to go to the cabinet reshuffle. Thank you very much for visiting, Michael. Master. Now, I've bought you a little present, your first bobblehead to start your collection on your desk. Oh, would it not be easier for me to take yours? My bobbleheads! No, your your desk gets bigger and since I will be the Minister for Finance... So Finance! I'm afraid I've only a certain amount of room oh. what with all my toys and G-Jaws, so it's best if I keep this one myself. Right, well, if you want to give me your passwords, then... No, I- I've something much more valuable to pass on to you, my wisdom. Oh. And as incoming Minister for Finance, It'll be your job to make sure the people are not angry, just disappointed. But 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 how am I going to do that? Feel the force of your colleagues and soon you'll be able to tell with your eyes closed which one of them is about to make a massive boo-boo huh. that you can hide your own unpopular decision behind. Oh, like sweep it under the carpet. Or, or under the gigantic half-built children's hospital. Huh. Or the billion-plus wrong sums in Stephen Donnelly's copybook. Uh, Whichever one happens to be nearest. You know that he's actually blaming us for getting those sums wrong. Nobody believes a man with no dimples. <laughs> Do you think I'll be as famous as you now once I get the big gig? No, I don't think so. You'll be more of a Helen McEntee sort of minister. Sorry, who's Helen McEntee? <laughs> wow. My mind just went blank there just trying to say her name. And that says it all. It's like a coveny shaped hole for charisma. Uh. Toodles, Michael! Callan's kicks. And to the Ray Darcy show in the afternoon, Ray caught up with comedian Jason Byrne. Jason Byrne, good afternoon. How are you, Ray? L- listen, look, can I just say that every time uh, I go- have to go and do surgery, I go and see my doctors, but then I have to come and see you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand it at all. And I got the doctors are all happy enough with me. Now. Then I get the Ray phone call. Can we come in now, Jason, and have a final a final exam? You drove me to Google when I heard your news because yeah. I was wondering how many stents oh. can a human being have? Yeah, and you're up there. You're up there I'm at the record. Now. Yeah, so I've got six. So I'm the six six million stented dollar man. Whatever you know. Uh, what is the record? I I, I think no, it's. I think there's none. Uh, seven probably so you're you're close you think to the, the record, record is seven stents no I met a guy who has 26 ah you didn't yeah I did yeah stents <laughs> are tiny so anyway look the thing is that with I mean oh, unfortunately I know this because you have your heart and you yeah. have your main arteries and yes. then what my arteries were blocked was the ones that were going off the main arteries okay and they can be stented forever like all the way, like just all the way along just pushing them along dong 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 like right. that they can get in there but uh, anyway what, what happened to me the first time I seen you uh, this was last year uh, I had five stents put in because uh, two of the arteries now these are all branched arteries again if it was the big main ones the lad said it would have to be a bypass you know so they said uh, it's only the it's the 
and I only say only doesn't matter yeah. one it was at 90% two at 70% blockage the 90% when they showed me like was literally like it looks like it's sealed the blood was dripping through it so they put five stents in those three uh, sorry two arteries to open them up open them up yeah stent goes in opens it up and they pull a, pull back the tubing all back out the stent stays there and the blood flows and then they you put you on meds that, so the stents don't clog up you know what I mean mm. so all and the reason and again just to re- remind people what happened was I just felt a tiny pain in the right hand side of my heart like a little pumping constant pumping and uh, it was very unusual like a stitch and that's when I went to the doctor and then they did all the an- they did the angiogram which is the uh, they call it the invasive angiogram and the- these are look I- I'll have to say I've had dental surgery that's worse than this it's- it doesn't hurt mm. do you know what I mean and you can also take uh, what they call the gin and tonic before you go in as well they have all that ready for you just to calm you down because you are awake and they put they-, they go in up through your wrist and into your heart that way and put the stents in and it's so you fine. didn't collapse or anything the first no. time around. No, no collapsing. I didn't yeah. have, have any of that. It was yeah. just me going to the doctor, and he just went through different processes, and then he eventually just did the angiogram, and then they see that's when they can see right inside your heart. So how long ago was that then? The initial five. That that's a year ago. Right. So now what happened then was now before um, you before you get onto it because we did speak about which is interesting. Mm. I think is this rehab that you do yeah. after that because I, I would imagine a lot of people are fearful that if they do anything that exerts themselves that it'll have an effect on their heart yeah and funny enough that when it when, um, yeah because I was recommended to do rehab because I had five stents which was which is pretty big and I was pretty weak for about two weeks afterwards I couldn't walk properly I was out of breath like all that kind of stuff mm. so they said just to take it easy but to definitely go into rehab so in rehab it's fine there's only, there's only five lads in there you're on treadmills Cycling machines, all that kind of stuff. You're hooked up to heart monitors. You're not. You're not going fast, by the way. Very f- slow pace stuff. And the nurses and the, the doctors there are just showing you that your heart is totally fine. It's fine. And you that's I mean? part of it, isn't it? It's not yeah. just getting back physically fit. No, it's all it's mental, psychological. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Um, it was really like a sitcom in there. And then you're afraid to run or yes, cycle yeah. or lift or anything. But you need to do these things. You need to do it yeah. and to show. And then as well as that, it, it, the history of of heart operations. Uh, again, I already know this because I in this world was people were being put to bed after uh, open heart surgery and then they were they weren't surviving mm-hmm. because the heart needs to move and pump it's a muscle and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to get stronger it has to it's like rehab like any of our um, limbs or anything they need to move to get stronger so yeah so we, we did rehab total success like I came out of there feeling no problem and then I started running again because like you, like I mean, I love running. That's mm. my thing. That's my go-to. I, that's what I do. I, I need to run. I have to run. And I don't mean running fast. I would just trot it out because I'm 50 now. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And, I, and with, with the five stents, I found a little bit like the bionic man, though, I'd have to say. Because I don't know what happened, but I felt like I had a bit more speed. Did you? Just a bit more, yeah. I felt definitely course, I was able to the, lift the legs better and all. The blood was going through your veins was, faster. There was more oxygen getting to your limbs. Yeah. Yeah. Scientifically, it makes sense. It was flying, yeah. I was doing really well, you know what I mean? Okay. And so all that was that was good. And then the you know the doctors did, I said, so what's the story with my gigging? Because what we do for a living is, is highly stressful. You're on your own as a comedian. You, I mean, you have a team even here, yeah. like looking after you. We don't have anybody, do you know what I mean? It's just us. And your <laughs> and heart rate, I don't know if you've ever put a heart monitor on yourself while doing a gig, yeah. have you? Yeah, no. No, no. I, that'd be an interesting... Oh, yeah, it would be an interesting. Yes, I wonder what yeah. happens. <laughs> and Jason had some advice. Definitely listen to your body. Do you know what I mean? 
Like your body is amazing. You know what I mean? Like, like it'll know even more than a doctor will know at, at the second that, that something's happening to you. you. You know that feeling you get? It's this feeling and you're just going, something's not right. Okay. Mm. And here's, a, and, I, and somebody, when I put up the, me in the hospital again, like la, two weeks ago, a woman posted that she says, oh my God, she was from Scotland. And she goes, my husband was uh, not feeling well. And he just kept saying it was food poisoning and to leave it. And she was going, no, you need to go to the hospital. He's going, no, no, I'll be okay. Leave it, leave it. And she was going, please, come on. And a lot of time men will do that. He'll mm-hmm. find a different diagnosis. And they, and but, she, but he knew he wasn't right. But he probably knew he wasn't right. And he was afraid to go in because he knew it was more serious than food poisoning. So this what happened. She brought, she eventually got him in two days later, right? And they got him in. And yes, lo and behold, he was having a heart attack. He needed stents. Right. And then the woman said, the doctor looked at her and went, can I have a little look at you as well? And the woman went, well, yeah, three stents for her as well. In he went. <laughs> so she was just as stressed as him. So so, so you, the then, body, a, a year on and you're back gigging. And yeah. When you ask the doctor's advice on going gigging, what did they say to you? They said, yeah, you could, yeah, go ahead, but don't take the, you know, the mic. Don't, right. They don't go mad. But what does that mean? Like, what did you like, take it to mean? Well, take it like I used to get people up on stage and drag them around and like cut and and just be this kind of manic. And I've I seen started, you. Yeah. I started slowing that down. Do you know right. what I mean? I started not doing that anymore to try and get get a. There hold. was a, there was a horse routine or something, was there? Oh my god! There's been horse <laughs> routines. I've swung on the stage in a wrecking ball. I've had people in boxes. I've 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 so literally I, I've lifted up people out of their seats. You yeah. Know what I mean? So, so, so as, all that. as well as the stress of going on and knowing you have to entertain fifteen hundred people. Yeah. You were physically active as well. Yeah, so you, you, it was double, double stress on your it is poor little yeah, five yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's 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 not the best thing to be doing going back up on stage with five stents. You yeah. know what I mean? And again, the stress can inflame stuff. So I try to uh, go back on the stage and not not jump around as much, which I've been, which was a success. But then, of course, what happened was, you know, in August I did forty seven shows in in three weeks in Edinburgh. And then I had a week break and then I did 28 shows in 28 different cities. And then that's where, the, ah, that's where it all ended. Come on, Jason. No, but, no, but hang on. <laughs> I have to work. I know <laughs> you have to work. But I was also not, I wasn't lepping around as much. So yeah. what happened was, it was probably, you know, the travelling, the moving, the everything, yeah. right? So this is where you listen to, the bite body just started to kind of, I felt a bit weak on stage now. This is the worst feeling ever. If you're on stage, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, if you feel sick here, it's grand. You can get Ryan Tuberty or somebody to come in. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Ryan comes in. Or Baz. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Just go, I don't feel well. Ring Ryan. Because Ryan's just, he's just in a cupboard here, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, You you just have, you can go through your little filing cabinet for all your different DJs (laughs) that you need. But if I'm in, if something happens to me, there's only me, there's only Jason. they're here to see Jason Byrne. Yeah, so there's a thousand people in Dunfermline it was. It was the second half and I started talking and then I could hear kind of roar, roar, roar. And then I was feeling a bit weak and looking, kind of the black and white thing And you were on stage. Yeah, so so uh, I'm on stage. How far into the set? Oh, I had about 30 minutes left in the second half to finish. So what I started doing was I started grabbing at stuff in my brain that wasn't uh, very physical. Like I didn't have to, yeah. you know, perform yeah, yeah, it out yes. so big. And so I started rooting through stuff like that. Like while I'm talking, rooting and probably having a heart attack. So <laughs> I was going on. So the next day, I still, I'm still getting weaker and I've, I've got a gig in Glasgow. So I went, I can't do the gig. Well, you got to the end of that one. Yeah, I got to the end of that one. Yeah, yeah. Got to the end of that one. Then sat and in. And nobody was the wiser. No, nobody had a clue. 
no. Promoters, no, nobody. Promoters, the audience, nobody knew that I was not feeling well at all. And so I then put it down to maybe, you know, exhaustion because I had five stents as well as yeah. that. I've had a success for the whole year. I've been running. I've been grand. There was no problem. My mm. diet's been great. And then I, st- and that was it. I just went, I can't do this gig in Glasgow. I have to, I, I, I don't feel like it's a good idea. Mm. And there was no diagnosis for what that was. I just felt my body doesn't want me to go on that stage. So I'm not doing it. And friends of ours in the past have literally collapsed on stage. You know what I mean? That we've known of, like comedians well, and all. T- famously, like, Tommy Cooper. Well, Tommy Cooper, yeah, you know. Yeah. But I mean, in defence, he might he, he drank a lot, smoked a lot. Again, like, he was he was insane, mm. which I don't do. No, which, which I might start because I, I don't do it at all. So anyway, they did. They, that was it. Went to went to Glasgow A and E just to get checked out, make sure it wasn't a heart attack or anything that kind of stuff. Because what happens is they were saying that when you get in uh, your heart, if it's under any stress, it releases chemicals into your blood and they can spot that straight away in your blood test. So they did that. That was all clear. Did the x-rays, did everything. But one thing they can't spot is blockages. They can't spot if your heart is narrowing down the... uh, they have to do an angiogram. Yeah, they can't spot that at all. Yeah. So, so because that happened to me last time, I had five, I, they did all those bloods and everything. And they hadn't spotted. They didn't know that the, yeah. until the angiogram until they went right in. They went, oh, blockage. So this one, A&E into Glasgow, which was brilliant, by the way. Brought me in and did all the bloods and everything. Sent me back out. About an hour, I'd say. And then I came home and then rang uh, Dr. Niall Mulvihill, El Stenty boy that he is. He's brilliant. <laughs> And uh, got, he, I got a spot into his surgery and, and he, he got me up on the table and had a look inside. And he said, your stents are all perfect. And I went, thank God, because this is the other thing. You know when a doctor, he tells you stuff that you, and you're going, oh my God, please don't tell me that. Because I'm definitely that person where they go 5% of people, you know. Oh yeah, they, it's all about percentages. Yeah, 5% yeah. of people reject the stents and they yeah. block. And I was going, that's me. Like straight in, I was going, and he goes, no, it's not. Let's have a look. All clear, all work in surgery completely totally fine just at the bottom of one of the, the one of the arteries that has a little bend in it there was a bit of narrow in there just a tiny bit of narrowing and that's what was that's what I was feeling Jason Byrne from the Ray Darcy show And in the morning, another warning about the dangers of the respiratory illness RSV and its potential effects on very young babies. Yesterday, the Chief Medical Officer, Professor Breda Smith, said doctors thought we'd reached the peak of this wave of RSV, which was substantially bigger, she said, than any previous wave. But she also warned that with viruses, it's very unpredictable. And while things might be improving slightly, this virus affects children predominantly, with over half the cases in children aged less than five. In a moment, I'll be speaking to Dr. Carol Blackburn, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at CHI Crumlin, about the possibility of an immunity gap for children born during the COVID pandemic. But first, I'm joined on the phone by Denise Callan, a journalist with the Irish Independent. Denise has written this morning a very personal account for the paper about the frightening RSV symptoms, which saw her spending four days in hospital with her six-week-old baby, Aoife. Denise, good morning to you. Hi Claire, how are you? I'm very well. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. You've been through the mill yourself and, and Aoife. Tell us what happened. Um, yeah, Aoife, had, um, Aoife has an older sister who's in crash, and I understand that a lot of this RSV transmission is from older siblings bringing home viruses to their little siblings at home. And possibly the older siblings would have been what we call lockdown kids. You know, they wouldn't have the same immunity levels as children in years beforehand would have had. Um, But Aoife had like an occasional cough, like she had coughed once or twice. And I thought, 
oh, that doesn't sound great. And I had used a saline spray on her nose to loosen the mucus. Yeah. But really within the space of a few hours, Claire, the situation changed. The main thing really was that I was breastfeeding her and she wasn't keeping down the feed. Her appetite was a little bit lower and then she was throwing up afterwards and it was kind of like a mucus and uh, milk, kind of a mix of throw up and I thought, oh, this isn't great. But then I think as well, I've never been to A&E before and we don't really visit the doctor a lot like we wouldn't have reason to. And part of me was wondering, am I being dramatic here? Like, should I should I speak to somebody? What should I do? So I text a friend in Cork who's a nurse and I just gave her a rundown of the last couple of hours. She didn't have every RSV symptom because I had Googled them and I was like, she's not ticking all the boxes, so I wasn't too sure. But my friend said, she's too small, Denise, just call an out-of-hours GP because it was Saturday. And when I was on the phone to that GP, he immediately sent a referral letter to attend Amy at CHI Crumlin. He said, look, she's too small to take a chance on. And when I went to A&E, everything was calm. It was just myself and Ethan. She was in the car seat and she was still in good form. So I did still feel like, am I going to be wasting doctor's time here now? You know, she's not looking exceptionally unwell, but she did have those couple of symptoms, like she had the stuffy nose and she was unable in the hours previous to that to keep, keep her feeds down. But I was so happy then that I had just made the move then mm. and gone in. Because we all we all ask ourselves, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I wasting people's time? I could be sitting at home here rather than being in an emergency department. But you were in the right place, weren't you? Yeah. And like other parents there thought the same thing. And, um, you know, everyone was kind of thinking, you know, I don't come here often. Am I overthinking it? Now, some parents, the babies were checked out and they were sent home because they were able to keep down their feeds and, you know, everything was going well for them. But I think the main thing for Aoife was she wasn't clear enough in her nose to breathe and feed at the same time. And she was throwing up quite substantially at that stage. So as the hours ticked on in A&E and then the paediatrician doctor said, Denise, look, we're just going to keep her overnight for observation. I thought, OK, I feel better. And then in the middle of the night, then the decision was taken to admit us. And Isa was put on um, like a minimal amount of oxygen. And they put the tube feed in. They said, look, you breast pump away. And what we'll do is we'll just tube feed her just to give her little body a chance that she doesn't have to be trying to breathe and feed at the same time because little babies obviously only breathe through their noses. So that's mm-hmm. what was so difficult for her. So we were admitted in the early hours of Sunday morning and we went up to St. Peter's Ward and there, I mean, it was just baby after baby with the same thing, Claire, to be with honest. RSV. All the nurses said it, yeah, yeah. Were you, you must have been very frightened at that time because I'm just thinking back to what babies look like when they're five weeks old and she's tiny uh, at that yeah. stage, six weeks now. A, a scary experience for you watching all that. Yeah, like a little bit of an out-of-body experience, I think, because sometimes I think when you're in that situation, you just, I know for sure, I just ploughed through and it was only when I came home, I felt the relief and like I started to think about what we'd been through over the last few days and like really realised as well how lucky we are that Aoife was strong and healthy because she was, she looked she looked strong and big compared to some babies in there. Yeah. there were, one baby was went in when she was just eight days old, like babies were tiny in there and it just, it was scary now thinking back. Then Claire spoke to Dr. Carol Blackburn, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at CHI Crumlin. You were, I know, seeing a lot of it. Have things changed or are you still seeing a lot of cases coming in? Uh, Good morning, Claire. Uh, Yes, we are still seeing a lot of cases. Um, This year has been um, 
quite a tough winter for RSV so far. And as you said at the outset, there are mo- there is more of it around uh, this winter. Now, the latest data from the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, which monitors all of these seasonal um, viruses, amongst other things, would appear to suggest that the latest week's figures are down on the preceding week. Um, and that would tally with what we expect for RSV. We usually expect RSV to peak in December somewhere in December um, and it varies a little bit obviously from year to year it shifts by a couple of weeks in either direction um, but again as, as as we know it won't be a precipitous drop you know so yeah. if, if it has if it hasn't been peaked then what we will see in the coming weeks is there will still be a lot of the virus circulating and it will be a more of a slow decline and there may be a couple of further little blips up and down as we go along. And the RSV season is quite long, you know, it does yeah. generally it can go all the way through until February or March. Denise described it really well you know, little baby trying to breathe through its nose, then can't feed, that's where the problems mm-hmm. arise. Is that in the main what you're dealing with, working out the, putting those pieces of the jigsaw together so that the baby can feed and breathe? That's exactly right, and Denise described it so well. I mean, generally speaking, when children pick up RSV, um, the youngest are the most severely affected because they're what we call obligate nasal breathers. They have to breathe through their noses. They don't know at that age that you can breathe through your mouth. So when their nose gets bunged up with secretions caused by the the effect of the virus in the cells, um, it's difficult to breathe. And then, of course, if you're trying to breathe and feed at the same time, it's, it's harder work. So we see that expressed initially as increased what we call work of breathing. So their breathing rate, as in the number of breaths per minute, goes up. We start to see other signs of what we would call respiratory distress, as in sometimes you'll see the nostrils flaring. Sometimes we might see um, just under the ribs kind of sucking in and out as they're breathing. And then in time, that becomes difficulty feeding and that then turns into vomiting as, as part of that as well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the knock-on effect on that of that is dehydration and reduced wet nappy. So these are all the signs that parents pick up on. Um, and these are generally the concerns when parents, um, you know, come to their family doctor or indeed come to the hospital. Uh, it's usually a concern about the baby's capacity to feed at that point and concern about dehydration as well. And Carol, this immunity gap that we're hearing about, I know mm-hmm. the HSPC's report suggests that the increased circulation of this virus might be due to that. Can you explain that to us and whether you think it's a factor? Sure. Um, so RSV is around every winter. It's very predictable. You know, the peaks vary a little bit from year to year, but it is it is very much a virus that we live with um, in paediatrics. Um, and every child, normal times, pre-COVID, pretty much everybody comes across RSV by the time you're a year old. Um, and, you know, the younger you are when, when you find it, the more at risk you are of ending up um, having to visit um, the emergency department or, or meet people like me. Um what then happens is uh, in subsequent seasons, you know, you come across the virus again, but you've, you've seen it before, so it affects you less as you get older. Mm-hmm. So what we have is, you know, we had, I guess, lockdowns rolling from March of 2020 all the way through that winter, all the way into the following spring. So there would be a cohort of children who were in their first year at that time um, who didn't come across RSV in that winter. And, and I suppose last year, even though we had quite a robust RSV season last year, we probably did have children who were toddlers or infants who, you know, for various reasons with hygiene measures and everyone was being very careful last winter, the kids didn't come across it then either. So what we now have are, you know, toddlers who are coming across it for the first time, which is unusual. 
And then, as Denise said, um, you know, there's a risk then that they're passing it on to their younger siblings who have no immunity to it as they as they never would because yes. no one is born with immunity to mm-hmm. RSV, really. Dr. Carol Blackburn from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Clada Records have just re-released a 1966 recording marking the involvement of women in the 1916 Rising. Historian Mary McAuliffe was talking about rebel women. Well, it is Rebel Irish Women and it is a re-release of a record that was put out in 1966 um, as part of the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising commemorations. And probably one of the few things that actually commemorated women uh, in the in, in that 50th anniversary commemoration, unfortunately, the women were pretty marginalised and sidelined during that time. Uh, and so it's great to see it reissued now at the end, well, coming towards the end of this decade of centenaries in which women have been centre stage in the commemorations. Let's talk about that before we get to the album for a moment. Um, As you say, sidelined in 66, arguably sidelined from the constitution onwards, post-rebellion and independence. Um, And you've got to ask yourself two questions, I suppose. One is, how did it happen? How did all these women who were very instrumental, I would say, and I'm sure you would too, in the foundation of the state, how were they disappeared? And secondly, how important has it been and how difficult has it been to bring women back into the front of the stage or at least as co-actors in this in a way they hadn't been before? Well, to answer the first question, how were they sidelined? I think the Civil War had a huge part to play in that because, of course, uh, the political women, those in common man, were for the most part anti-treaty and they become, uh, you know, Uh, looked at as furies, as unmanageable, ungovernable revolutionaries, as mad women, Uh, both uh, uh, W.T. Cosgrave and many of uh, those who were in the free state government just thought these women were crazy, uh, that they they were, uh, you know, had lost their natural femininity, their nurturing and caring nature because of being blooded during the War of Independence. Um, and they also saw them as as dangerous. You know, they were a challenge to the state. Um, uh, but you also have to see that this was part of, you know, there was a radical moment, I suppose, during the revolutionary period, but it was happening in what was still a highly conservative state. And of course, then the power of the church had to come into it as well. So those, that combination of the, the attitude of women to the treaty and their participation in the civil war as active militants. You have to remember uh, the Irish Free State imprisoned way more women uh, during the civil war than the, the Crown Forces and the British government had during the War of Independence, upwards of 600. Um, and so you can see how seriously they took the threat of these political active women. Um, uh, but also there was the ideology of respectability and domesticity in a post-colonial, conservative, faith-based, dominated by the Catholic Church state, which saw women as as uh, second-class citizens, mm. essentially, even though they had been guaranteed full and equal citizenship in the proclamation and indeed in the 22 constitution. But for the state, the position of women was in the home, in the domestic, married, mother, uh, uh, the angel of the heart, basically. I'm, I'm trying to figure secondly, out. Secondly, yes, yeah, oh yeah. Secondly, in the in this decade of centenaries, well, um, 
you know, women's stories have been front and center, mm-hmm. uh, but that didn't happen without a lot of of uh, talking and research and right. writing and publication by mostly women historians over the last four decades, and by insisting that women's stories be center stage. And interestingly, the public have really responded mm. to that and look for those stories and want more uh, and want to know not just about what the Cumann Amman women did, but their experiences, uh, including the violence that they experienced during this period, which has become a large part of my own research mm. and which I'm, I'm writing on now. Uh, and uh, everything that happened to them, you know, the legacies, the traumas, uh, the loss of the potential uh, for radical change. Yes. Uh, the fact that the Irish Free State became essentially no country for women. Uh, it, it, I'm intrigued by the idea of the, the the Irish Free State writing these women off, coming them on particularly as, as you call them, mad women or furies, yeah. to use your word, and yet they perceived a threat. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you often get those kind of contradictory discourses when it comes to uh, writing off uh, marginalised communities or, or, or those uh, you don't want or don't see as fully part of of your state or your community. They're both uh, powerless and dangerous. So that was the way with women. We have to keep them in the home because if they come out of the home, goodness knows how they would contaminate the public sphere, the political discourse. And that led, of course, to ideologies around institutionalization of deviant or so-called deviant women uh, and all of that sort of thing that we're, we are now you know, paying for. Uh, a century later in restorative justice and looking at that dark underbelly yes. uh, of Irish society. Uh, so both women were both powerless and the angel of the house and, and the domestic woman and uh, that, that binary of, uh, you know, the crazy woman, the yes. dangerous woman. And Ryan spoke about his own family history of women in the 1916 Rising. I just say, a cousin of mine is doing very interesting research on our grandmother who was in Cumann Amman, uh, Mary Coyle, and uh, if I could be personal for better for a moment. And what I was wondering, and, and she's looking at this as well, is you had this 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 uh, cohort, if you wish, of, of women who were involved in politics and, and fighting in, in Cumann Amman and, and beyond. And then they were told, right, thanks very much. Thank you for your service. Back in the home, back in the kitchen. That's where you belong. That's a lot of, of smart people, uh, a lot of committed people, a lot of passionate people told, there's your apron, Good luck with that. I mean, I know that sounds glib, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if they had been, uh, you know, permitted or indeed yes. uh, able to participate in the state, because you can see even the ones who went up against that ideology, the, the women like Kathleen Lynn, who founded St. Alton's Hospital, yeah. other women were running uh, schools around the country. Uh, so many of them did... Uh, mostly education and healthcare outside of the structures of the state, if they had been able to use their skills and their intelligence and their energies in the service of the state, we could possibly have had a much better experience of those first few decades of, of, um, you know, the Irish Free State and and that post-colonial, it it was such a poor state uh, and it took such a long time. uh, And I think we're still 
trying to to work out all the the, the legacies of that period. But it took took such a long time for us to deal with the issues of being a post-colonial state that perhaps had we had the women more fully in the public sphere, it might have been a different story. Well, it's my contention that we're still coming to terms with the famine as a a nation. And I would (laughs) argue that equally, just from what you're saying, it'll take another few decades, maybe even generations before we quite understand what happened in the early years of the 20th century in Ireland. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're commemorating civil war now, and uh, that's difficult. I think we're yes. doing it quite well. Um, but you know, the worst of the civil war doesn't really happen in un, until we go into twenty three, particularly in places uh, like where I'm from, like in Kerry, uh, where it it gets pretty vicious and violent and and awful. Um, and we need to, you know, be able to understand the impacts and legacies and traumas of that and the divisions it created. I mean, we have, you know, we talk about constantly our civil war parties. And even though that may not be as fully in evidence today it was, as it was maybe even three decades ago, four decades ago, it is still a legacy, a thread that goes through our history since the foundation of the state. And often um, internecine struggles are kind of sewn into the the stone walls and the, the and, and the fields of local towns and villages in a way that maybe they wouldn't be in the cities. Oh no, and um, uh, my argument as well is you know we talk about uh, the civil war. I love the uh, the Irish title. I think is 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 explains it as Cogan Nagarad, the War of Friends. But also, you know, it wasn't just brother against brother. It was sister against sister mm. as well. Mm. Uh, and so that, that violence split families. It split siblings. It, it, it was just any country that goes through civil war will deal with a different legacy than something like a war of independence, which is effectively a, a liberation war. Uh, I think the, the fallout from that turning inwards in ourselves, that fighting among ourselves, is is more traumatic in in different layered ways that takes an awful long time to come to get beyond. And Ryan asked Mary about Helena Maloney. Uh, let's talk about this extraordinary uh, album that's been re-released, but also there's added things on it makes it a bit more uh, up to date, if you like. Um, Helena Maloney, would you talk to me about her, please? Yes, Selena Maloney is one of my, I suppose, favourite revolutionary women. Um, you know, quite a bit has been written about her and there is a biography, but I still think she is uh, lesser known than she should be. Um, a, a working class Dublin woman who was politicised when she heard Maud Gon speak. And I mean, Maud Gon was just uh, so fabulously um, theatrical, but also committed to the, the causes of Ireland uh, and women uh, that Helena was inspired and immediately gets involved in the Heron, uh, the organisation that had been set up by Maud Gon. And effectively, when Mo, when Gon goes off back to France uh, during the first decade or so of the 20th century, Helena becomes the leader in Inina the Heron and the editor of their newspaper, Ban the Heron. Um, she is uh, devoted to the cause of Ireland, to the cause, she's a socialist, cause of workers and the cause of women, and brings so many of the other women into the revolutionary cause, including Markovich, Kathleen Lynn, uh, and many of them. She fought, of course, in the Rising in 1916 in City Hall, was there when Sean Connolly was shot dead. Um, she was a, an Abbey Theatre actress. She was apparently a really, really good actress, very committed to the cause of women involved in the Irish Women Workers' Union, 
Uh, and for the rest of her life, she continued to be uh, a woman who devoted herself to all those causes and not without cost to herself, um, had had a lot of problems in terms of, of uh, trauma and I suppose what we would now consider PTSD um, and uh, suffered from bouts of depression and illness and unfortunately heavy drinking. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going through the diaries of Kathleen Lynn at the moment mm-hmm. and Kathleen Woodward being one of her best friends and she refers to Helena as Emer. And it's it's interesting to see Emer's always either on a high and doing all sorts mm-hmm. of things with the workers' union uh, and involved in all sorts of campaigns about women workers or the state or uh, going against the state for its misogynistic politics, or she's on a downer, she's depressed, she's drinking too heavily. Mm-hmm. But she never gave up. She always came round again and never gave up uh, for the fight. And she is one of the few women who recognised that when she was interviewed in the 60s, who recognised that uh, women could become devoted to causes. They could have their own ideology. She was, you would get very annoyed if, if it was presumed she went into politics because she followed some man uh, into politics. Mm. Maybe, uh, you know, if she loved him or it was a brother or whatever. Uh, she said, you know, would you ask what the tall blonde men would do or the short, dark-haired men would do? Women can find an ideology and commit their lives to it. Um, uh, so she's an amazing woman, and yes. I think one of those inspirational uh, revolutionary women that we should know much more about. And this is the great thing about the album, is that we can now, and we're going to share a, a little uh, a clip of, of Helena Maloney talking um, about being imprisoned in Kilmainham Jail. I was with the girls, brought up into one of the upper galleries where some of the men were, including James Connolly. Well, every morning we heard shots in the yard below and there was something sinister about them. We knew the men were being shot, which was the truth, they were. So that was a terrible experience for us. And that went on. And after, I think, I think a week or so, maybe more, we were then moved to Mount Joy Prison. And that is, of course, uh, Helena Maloney. And I just see um, Helena Maloney's sister uh, was on to say that Nell Regan wrote the biography that you, I think you mentioned there, Mary. She did, um, yeah. So uh, by uh, Ireland House. Thank you very much. And uh, also featuring the voice of, um, among the other voices on the album, Kathleen Behan is in there. But you mentioned Maud Gone, born in Surrey in England um, and, of course, converted to republicanism by, among other things, an eviction she she witnessed. And I'm going to play a little bit of that. And Mary, you might reflect on it after this. I saw whole countrysides and little townlands devastated with battering ram and fire. Good, honest, hard-working people turned out of their little homes that they had built to wander the roads. The emigrant ships their only hope. I saw babies born in ditches and die in the infamous overcrowded workhouses. I swore as a girl I would devote whatever strength God had given me to the freeing of my country. Amazing. I mean, it is. It is. There is something about hearing the the voice and not somebody playing the voice or a talking uh-huh. head talking about the voice. If you like, it 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 is quite uh, it's quite eerie in, in in a way, but it's 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 instructive and it's lovely to hear. 
It is, and, and interesting to hear the difference in their voices as well. I mean, Helena has a, a, a lovely Dublin accent yes. and Maud Gaughan is quite the aristocratic Anglo-Irish, a little bit of Irish coming in there, a little bit of a, a Irish accent. And it just shows the involvement of, of women across the classes in mm. revolutionary and socialist and feminist politics, the three great causes of Ireland that Countess Markovic spoke about, the cause of Ireland, the cause of women and the cause of labour. Mary McAuliffe from the Ryan Tiberty Show. Ah, the perfect mince pie. Things didn't get off to a great start when Baker Graeme Hetteridge popped in to see Claire in the morning. Baker Graeme Hetteridge has just arrived in studio and he has loads of gorgeous mince pies. He's going to tell us how to make them perfectly. And as he sat down, I said to him, Graeme, I'm not mad about mince pies. And he said, well, that's a great story. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll have something you like here. Do, do you find, though, that it's sort of a particular choice, like Marmite? Isn't oh, it? it's, a lo- it's a love-hate relationship yeah. with mince pies, definitely. People really... like. I find people love the more unusual flavours that I make in the shop as opposed to little kind of classic mince pies. Yeah, let's talk about the unusual ones first. So, they are really for, unusual. First of all, I always finish my uh, mince pies with a crumble. It's what I prefer oh, as opposed rich. to a pastry top. Yeah, so it's an oat crumble, which are these ones with the icing sugar. And that's just classic mince meat with some apple in it. Then these dark ones here is a chocolate. So in the mince meat, I have added some uh, Italian sour cherries, dark chocolate and flaked almonds. And it's a chocolate and almond crumble top and then these ones here are quite unusual so it's again minced meat but there's uh, smoked bacon pear and cheddar in there what yes well we're going back to the tradition highly unusual pies used to be made of meat Okay. So that's where the name comes from. And you're making that when? That filling? Did you make so it like- I made my filling back in August. I started my base mince meat back wow. in August, so I did, yeah. Wow. So tell me then about the tradition and why that's going back to what they originally were. So they originally were. from, they started off in the 13th century and it was European crusaders were coming back over and what they were bringing with them was like these pies that were preserved meat with fruit and spices in it and over, I presume, kind of England mainly, they saw these were like spices coming from the east and they saw it as a representation of... And the pie was also a much, much bigger and oval in shape. Mm-hmm. So it looked like the manger. And they saw this as a very much kind of the kings bringing back the gifts. So now we know why the filling is called minced meat, minced but it doesn't meat. have all, meat yes. in it. And a lot of, like up to recently, you couldn't get vegetarian suet. You, you put beef suet into it. So there was always a little bit of beef in there. Mm-hmm. Now I use vegetarian suet, except for my smoked bacon ones so yeah that's where the you've brought in this rolling pin as well which is yes. a fascinating looking so one thing. of the things I was asked about yesterday was how do I get my pastry really really thin for mince pies so this is a rolling pin where there is um, space just adjusters on the end so you screw this off and you can actually roll your pastry to either 2 mil, 4 mil. Six mil or whatever size you want. And I guess you really, really thin pastry. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's, that's a real kind of... And do you, given that you're so practised, do you need that to guide you? Oh, see, it, you, it takes away having to think about it. Mm-hmm. If you're just rolling it out and when you can't roll it anymore, you know every piece of pastry is the same thickness. So you haven't got some thick... Do you know what, sometimes when you're just rolling, you can, your edges might be a bit thick and the middle might be a little bit thin. This just gives you an even all the way through. We still use these in the bakery for all of our biscuits and all right. of our pastry work. And how thin are you going then with I them? love to go to between four and two and four mils, so really quite thin. And it's a good short crust pastry. That's what you really need. Quite a deep fill uh, pie there on the oh, tra- yes. traditional front. Yes, yes. You, you do want plenty. It's not as bad as that. Like if you put too little in, do you know where it kind of goes hard and sticky? Mm-hmm. Where you want loads and loads of fruit. So like again, what I do with this one is 
I know I've given you a recipe for minced meat on the, and it's going to go up yeah, on the we'll website. Yeah, we put it on the website, yeah. yeah. But if you only have a jar of minced meat at home, I always add in some freshly chopped apple, really finely diced apple. I'll add some nuts in there and some extra fruit and an extra little bit of booze if I'm only just using an ordinary jar. So this is good advice. If we need to cheat, if we haven't in August made our filling, yes. like you... Are you okay with us using a jar? Buy a jar and pimp it up. Yeah, add a, add a little bit more, like maybe a little bit of orange zest or lemon zest. Add some diced apple. Some pecans is lovely in it. Um, a few dried cranberries, whatever kind of yeah. fruit. Yeah, and have. then you oh, can just... definitely say you made it yourself. If oh I yeah, and, ask I, you. and come here. Like, if you can't make your own charcoal spray and you haven't got time, go and buy it. Really? Yes. Is go that and not buy sacrilege it. now as well? Life's got, too short. Sometimes you've got the crumble topping now. Now you're telling us to go and buy <laughs> no, short crumble topping. That's so so easy. And again. Buy your shortcrust pastry for your base and make your crumble topping. That's equal parts butter, sugar, oats and flour. That's mm-hmm. all it is. Rub it together until it's really crumbly. Not like powdery, but nice clusters of um, crumble. And then that can sit in the freezer. And then you can just sprinkle it on top of your, on top of your mince pies whenever you're... I hope people can see these because they just look absolutely delicious. Do you want to just take one out? I know we have the camera on here and if right, people so are, are watching the programme, they can see. And then we have some edible glitter on our chocolate one. And our cheddar one. And do you find that people are going now for those more unusual oh, ones? Oh, definitely. People love the more unusual mm. ones. Like, like if you're you're getting your hit of your classic, but they want to try something a little bit different. What are you serving them with? Hot, cold, cream, custard? Hot. Everything tastes better with some sort of a dairy plunked on top of it. As simple mm-hmm. as that. So I love some really softly whipped cream on top of mine. But actually, another, and I meant to bring it in, I forgot it. Um, we are now stocking in the shop. Abernethy butter, which is they're up in the north and they have their own Christmas butter now, which is flavoured with rum and citrus zest and spices. So really hot mince pies, a little sliver of this butter or even a brandy butter and let it melt into it. It's gorgeous. Lovely, delicious with a cup of tea. Graeme Hetteridge from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Liveline in the afternoon, the lack of patience and, dare I say it, Christmas cheer. Valerie Cox called Joe. Well, I have to say, I live about seven miles outside Arklow in County Wicklow. Yeah. Lovely town, really nice people, never had any problems. You know, it's, I would have said it's a really friendly town. But late the other night, uh, it wasn't that late, in fact, it was the afternoon, we okay. had the dogs down on the beach and we were driving back down the main street in Arklow. And as we got near the end of the main street, suddenly the car cut out. Now, my daughter was driving. She couldn't get it going again. Mm -hmm. And I got out of the car to wave people around the car. Now, it wasn't a place you'd park in a million years. There was double yellow lines. We were in front of a pedestrian crossing. We couldn't get the car moving again. It turned out that the clutch had gone completely. So we couldn't move it. But with that, the abuse started. And I couldn't believe it, Joe. I mean, this is one of the reasons I rang you. I want Mm -hmm. to highlight this. Because I wonder, are we slipping into a very intolerant society now that we're coming out of COVID? Because I got out of the car, went to the back of it, and I was, you know, explaining to people they had to drive around the car. They, um, there was traffic coming the other way as well, but they were able to get around. But everybody lost their temper, and the cars started blowing the horns at us, um, just mm-hmm. putting their hands on the horns and staying on them. I reckoned about 40 cars blew their horns. Um, I was trying to figure it out. And then the pedestrians started to abuse us. And one man shouted at me across the road. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to repeat what he called us. And um, I said, look, the car is stuck. What do you want us to do? And he said, just get it the F out of there. And he was was going up a laneway. And he kept coming back down for another look. And then Uh three other pedestrians took it up as well and started screaming at us. Now, with that... 
um, a barman came out from Christie's pub. Now, I've got to say, Joe, we were probably there 15 minutes. Not one person offered us any help or offered okay. to have the car going. I had to give you a Porsche or... No, nothing. Get... So with that, this barman came out and he, st- he saw what was wrong. It was very obvious we were broken down now, yeah. very obvious. And he said, I'll sort this. And he went back into Christie's pub. He got four or five fellas and they came out and they pushed the car half up on a footpath Brilliant, um, yeah. so that the traffic could get by. And I mean, I'm internally grateful to them. They're the only ones who offered to help. I but don't but did any of Valerie? Did any of the forty people who were shouting? Did any of them say what's wrong? No. Did any of them say, "Are you okay?" Did someone maybe having a, a an illness, a, a falling into a weakness? Is it? Are you okay? Like you, did, nope, they didn't think you, What did they think you deliberately stopped the car to have a little yes. chat or something? I mean, my daughter was driving the car, so yeah. she stayed in the driver's seat, and I was behind her. And they started shouting at her, shouting at me. And I'd say back to them, look, the car's broken down. There's nothing we can do. I'm really sorry. We had rung for help. We also rang the guardian and told them where we were. Because obviously, it was tea time rush hour. It was a kind of sensitive yeah. place to be parking. And uh, they said, there's nothing you can do. There's, there is help on the way. And I rang a family member as well who came out. He was the first there. But he went into the pub anyway, this barman, and he brought out four fellas. And they moved the car, and they were just so nice okay. about it, Joe. And, and the 40 people who were unfriendly, to say the least, was it a mix of men and women? It was mostly men. Now, there were okay. a few women, all right. And they were doing this thing of, you know, the way male drivers go when they get really angry. They sort of hunch themselves over the wheel, and they start oh, revving yeah. the engine at you. Yeah. There was a lot of that as well. To what end? Now, like, to what, 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 are they, what are they going to achieve by... Well, they're not going to get by any faster, but when they did get by then, they went down, you know. I mean, the anger was, it was actually very intimidating. And I have never felt anything like that in Arco before. It was very, very unpleasant. Well, that's Valerie there. Then Mary called Joe about her experience. Myself and my daughter-in-law were driving down the main street. And usually, years ago, there used to be traffic lights there, but obviously there's this no is, more this there. Is, this is an Arco again? Arco, yeah. Arco. So I stopped to let the person coming from the bridge okay. coming across to go down the ta- to go down Lower Main Street, right? And what happened then was I flashed him and he wasn't moving, and I flashed him again and he wasn't moving. So I went I went to go on and I did go on, and he started to beep at me and stick up his fingers and shout at me. Yeah. So I done I just gestured at him like, "What the what the you know what." Yeah. And then what happened was he followed me and my daughter-in-law okay. right down around the town, bumper to bumper, stopping and starting and bumper and bumper. Yeah. So I ended up reporting it to the guards and the guards knew exactly who he was and went to him. But can I just say to Valerie, I really feel sorry for her. Um, but on another friendly note, she's just saying it's just what it's come to. I was um, driving yesterday and I saw this woman and she was really in a bad way walking. Yeah. So she lived up at the top of the town. I pulled up the car and I said, would you like a lift? She wasn't, she was a foreign lady and she couldn't thank me enough. So I yeah. brought her up. It's about Fair two miles away and I brought, well, a mile and a half. Well done. So I brought her up, dropped her off and she couldn't be thankful enough. If everybody just gave a little bit of patience a little bit of kindness, yeah. the world is run better, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> and is that, is that street in Arco? I know it well, actually. The, the, it's a very narrow street. 
is, yeah. Um, now there is there is um, a bypass around Arkle, but I know. Yeah. You, but it's and then the bridge is another pinch point. Oh, yeah. stuff. Is, that, is <laughs> Valerie? Is is it that people are are queuing anyway? And when they oh, well, they are. And in fairness, now the traffic has been one way for the last few weeks, and they've only just reopened it last week yeah, exactly. to two-way traffic. Mm. But you see, it's a lovely town, Joe. We have marvelous businesses there. The shopkeepers are lovely. I mean, it is just such a nice place that I was just bowled over by this because I've never seen anything like this, and I still don't understand why it happened. Yeah, but I can't. I, what I'm baffled by, Valerie, is that nobody inquired as to what was wrong. No, they didn't. But one text I'm reading here. It happened. It happened. My father once in Chapel is at Bridge in in Dublin, and oh he, he his car broke down. He walked back to the driver behind and said to him, "Hi, any chance you can explain to me how your horn is going to start my car?" <laughs> <laughs> and then Denise called Joe. Well, I was coming back from Sligo there. I think it was last year, and I was taking overtaking two Scanias, and the clutch went. I didn't know what was happening. I managed to get the car in and then the rip-roar of the guys behind me on the main road. And are you saying guys, you mean men? Yeah. Okay, what was the rip-roar? What were they? They just beat them and they pulled in, but they, they had to tell me to move out. Sure, I couldn't move the car. And did, yeah. any of them, did any of them say to you, are you okay? No. Any of them say, do you want a hand? No. Any of them no. say, are you, are you, do you need to get anywhere in a hurry? No, no. Um, I had to call out the rescue then. And then the same happened to me, because I'm tearing your temple oak, it's my area. Dublin, same happened yeah. to me on the Spawell um, roundabout. And I was driving quite a large car at the time. And I had no energy to pull it. It went on the roundabout. This was a few years ago. Yeah. And not one person came over to me. You see, and I stayed out, Denise, but Father, I'll come back yeah. to this. Uh, well, I was trying yeah. to remember what was niggling me over your, your yeah. story. About four weeks ago, we had uh, a woman on whose partner had got in a taxi. And when he was on the taxi, when he was the journey, he had an an epileptic fit. Okay. And the the taxi man effectively dumped him out of the... He thought he was drunk or something and dumped him out of the taxi. And never drove him... He should have been driving him to a hospital. And that's what I'm saying. Somebody, God forbid, in your car could have been having a, a fit of some description. And oh, I know there's have been boys in the back or they become you know, a schooler anything. or whatever, you know. But it's, um, it, 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 it's just really, as though we don't really care about one another anymore. And, you know, I would think that's very sad that we're not looking out for one another. That's Valerie there. And if that sounds a bit grim, Anna called Joe about an incident that happened to her in New York. I was in New York recently yeah. and I was getting out of a taxi and I had a load of parcels and I was taking too long for the car behind who started to hoot and I turned around to him and I had everything out and I said, what is your problem? And then I kind of turned away and I went walking around the corner. Next thing I heard his car revving up and passing the taxi mm-hmm. by, which he could easily have done at any point because there's no other traffic on that particular street. So... I walked down my street towards where I was going, and the next thing I could hear this car and somebody shouting at shouting. I didn't know necessarily it was at me. So I looked around, and this guy had his window down, and he was shouting directly at me, and which I ignored. And then yeah. the last thing I heard him say was, next time I will kill you. So, wow. <laughs> and then he drove off in a 
screech of tyres, etc., etc. So that was my New York story. Oh, God. Next time I yeah. will kill you. Absolutely. And, and did, he, did, have, did he look like... I have, no, I have no doubt that he had a gun in his car. Absolutely none. Very high-end, brand-new car. The accent was definitely what you'd expect a drug dealer to have. And the fact that he was threatening to kill me because I took too long to get out of a taxi and next, held him up. For... Next time I'll kill you. Yeah. Make, was, <laughs> did, he, did he look like Clint Eastwood? Make my day. <laughs> no, I couldn't probably see him. But, you know, he was in a, okay. he was in a car. So there how, we are. How did you get on in New York? Oh, very well, thank you. I'm glad to be back, however. That's Anna on the live line with Joe Duffy. Ursula von der Leyen quoting the Saw Doctors at the Oireachtas. Ray Darcy had to consult one of the doctors, Leo Moran, in the afternoon. Uh, now, um, President of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, addressed the Oireachtas yesterday. Uh, here is a bit of her speech. Have a listen. And I'm glad that today our talks with London are marked by a new, more pragmatic spirit. Because the European Union and the United Kingdom are still members of the same extended family even if we no longer live in the same house. And I can promise you that whenever the European Union sits down with our British friends, we will do so with an honest heart and an open mind to quote the great Irish band, The Saw Doctors. Hey, yes, Leo Moran from the Saw Doctors is on the line. How are you doing, Leo? Did you hear uh, Ursula von der Leyen there? I did indeed. Yes. Yes, very funny. It, very funny, that's it, very funny. She's quoting you from To Win Just Once, as you as you know. How, how does that happen, Leo? Well, I don't know. I imagine she has somebody writing her, giving her a hand writing the speech and somebody that might have some interest in us <laughs> slipped us in there. No, usually, you know, political leaders, they, they, they quote Seamus Heaney or, you know, W.B. Yeats or Oscar Wilde. Um, and, and now the Saw Doctors. I think it's brilliant. Well, we're delighted. We're laughing away. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's great to get a mention on such a, a large stage. Yeah, yeah. Where are you at the moment? We're in the Manchester Apollo. We're doing a gig tonight and we're lo- really looking forward to that. So you're we're, not, we're you're not in the run. EU. You're not in the EU. No, no, I, I'd, I'd be slagging them over here. I'd be saying it's uh, it's lovely to have left Europe and come over to play for you. <laughs> Leo Moran of the Saw Doctors from the Ray Darcy Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself, till next time.